Just after one o'clock in the morning on a frigid, starless night in March of 1910, more than a hundred souls aboard Great Northern Railway's Spokane Local No. 25, a passenger train, and Fast Mail Train No. 27 slept, tightly bundled in their cars. They'd been stuck near Wellington in King County, Washington for almost a week, waiting as railroad crews attempted to clear the tracks of snow, which had been accumulating at a record pace. Each time they tried, their enormous rotary plows either broke down, ran out of fuel, or got stuck, forcing crews to try digging out from the five to eight foot snowdrifts by hand, while passengers hunkered down and waited for the blizzard to pass. But it didn't pass. The snow just kept on coming. High above them loomed the peak of Windy Mountain, and below them, the Tai Creek Ravine. On the last day of February, the snow turned to rain. Lightning and thunder erupted across the Cascade Mountains, and one fateful lightning strike touched off the deadliest avalanche in United States history. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. And this is Washington, our home. Welcome back for another episode of the Washington Hour Home Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please take a moment to subscribe or leave a five-star review. If you really want to help me keep making these, go check out how you can support the show over at patreon.com slash Washington Hour Home. I try to put one of these out on the first Monday of every month, but it's hard. I don't have a producer, like many of the other podcasts out there. I don't have someone to research the material or write the script for me or edit the audio. And as you probably know, I don't have any advertisers at present, which means I have to do all that work around my full-time job and family time. So why do I keep doing it? Well, I do it because I love it. And I think you do too. So head on over to patreon.com slash Washington Hour Home and see how you can help to make sure these stories keep getting told. A big thanks to the few Patreon supporters I do have, including two Matthews, a Walt, and a Linda. If these fine folks could find a way to do it, so can you. Head over to patreon.com slash Washington Hour Home today to see what you can get for joining. And thank you very much. So where exactly is Wellington, Washington? Well, if you guessed somewhere near Burlington, Arlington, and Darrington, you'd be in the right general vicinity. But if you're looking for it on a map, you might have a tough time finding it. Its name was changed after the tragedy, and the town itself was eventually abandoned, then burned to the ground in the following years. Heading east from Everett on U.S. Highway 2, travelers will pass through the towns of Monroe, Sultan, Startup, Gold Bar, Index, Skycomish, and Scenic before reaching the summit of Stevens Pass, high in the central Cascade Mountains. Heritage adventurers just might be interested in taking a short detour to hike along the six-mile Iron Goat Trail, so named because the Great Northern Railroad that used to travel along the route featured a stoic mountain goat in the company's logo. It's a fantastic hike, with only about 700 feet of elevation gain from beginning to end. If you want to learn more about the trail, its history, and some great tips and tricks to make your hike unforgettable, go and pick up a copy of the book 
Day Hiking Central Cascades by my friend Craig Romano. It's available at Amazon.com. At the summit of Stevens Pass is the fabled ski area to the south. On the north side of Highway 2, however, is a nondescript gravel path called Tie Road that would likely be overlooked by travelers passing at freeway speeds. But turning onto this road and looking up into the trees will reveal handmade signs directing visitors to the Wellington Trailhead, just a little over three miles or 15 minutes away. The Iron Goat Trailhead provides explorers with ample parking spaces, interpretive signage, and relatively clean pit toilets. Hikers have two options from here, but turning left will lead to the original Cascade Tunnel, a short, dead-end trail with a number of historical panels that help visitors understand the context of life in a railroad town in the early 1900s. You see, Wellington was once a vital coal, water, and rest stop for trains heading through the mountains, and was the only town for miles where workers could purchase supplies from the Henrik Brothers General Store and gather overnight at the Hotel Bailitz. Visitors today can still find remnants of that long-forgotten lifestyle scattered along the trail, if they look in just the right places. For example, standing atop the ledge looking down into Tai Creek, also known as Tai River on some maps, eagle-eyed adventurers can spot an old rusty railroad tie literally sticking out of the side of the hill. Along the trail, explorers will also find the footing of Great Northern's Coal Tower, built in 1910. It's an enormous cement foundation that once supported the lifeblood of the railroad industry. Workers would load coal into the bottom, and a conveyor would raise it up to the hopper, where it would await the next locomotive to park beneath it. Locomotives would consume about a ton and a half of coal while winding their way through the switchbacks before the Cascade Tunnel was completed. Farther up the trail lie the remains of the 200-foot-long railroad inspection shed and rotary plow storage building. Trains were driven into the shed along two rails, but between the rails was a deep pit where workers could inspect and repair the underside of a locomotive, about like a Jiffy Lube or an oil can Henry's today. Though the structures are long gone and the pit has been filled with earth over time, you can still make out the width of the area and see the right-angled concrete edges where the rails would have carried those train cars into the shed. A few more feet down the trail, hikers will be met with a couple more signs and a warning not to go any further. It's from this vantage point that you can actually see the remains of the original Cascade Tunnel through the trees and bushes. If you go a little further, I'm told. And you're not supposed to do this, so consider yourself warned. There are more concrete building foundations now hidden by the undergrowth. Just past these is the tunnel itself, once a vital link between east and west, a proud monument to human ingenuity and determination, now decorated with graffiti and left to slowly crumble away. The old Cascade Tunnel was abandoned in 1929, after the new tunnel opened at a lower elevation. The old tunnel was a popular hiking and exploring destination, until the winter of 2007 and 2008, when a section of the roof caved in and created a debris dam inside the tunnel, making it impassable due to standing water and hazardous ceiling debris. Authorities issued a warning to stay clear of the old tunnel for a distance of half a mile, 
which is a regulation that will likely remain in place for the indeterminate future. At the end of the tunnel trail, just below the interpretive signs, hikers can still find railroad debris rusting away on the forest floor. They are remnants of a busier time in the Central Cascades and a reminder of the aftermath of the deadliest avalanche in United States history. Now, if you recognize that the avalanche happened where the trains were parked just outside the old tunnel, you're probably wondering why the engineers didn't just back the train back into the tunnel and wait out the blizzard in there. Well, there's a reason for that. On more than one occasion throughout history, trains passing from one end of a tunnel to another actually had passengers suffocate. In 1944, for example, a stalled train inside a tunnel near Balvano in southern Italy killed 520 people due to carbon monoxide gas from the steam engines of the locomotive. In 1910, trains were constantly belching out smoke and steam and other noxious fumes, and the passengers knew of the danger. They didn't want to be caught in that situation, so they opted to take their chances outside the tunnel. They had no idea that they were going to be directly in the path of the avalanche. Once you've taken in your fill viewing the western end of the old Cascade Tunnel, go ahead and backtrack to the trailhead. This time, turn right. You'll be heading toward the all-concrete snowshed, built the year following the disaster, to hopefully prevent anything like it from happening again in the future. On the way, hikers will pass the runaway track grade, which was used to slow and stop trains coming from the tunnel and moving through town with defective or weak brakes. The original runaway track was destroyed by the 1910 avalanche. Shortly after the runaway track sign is the entrance to the concrete snowshed, a massive buttress unlike anything else found in Washington. And since the Iron Goat Trail runs along the rail bed where the trains once traveled, hikers are led directly into the storied structure to learn more about the disaster. For protection at the site of the 1910 avalanche, the Great Northern built a 2,463-foot-long double-track snowshed. It's nearly half a mile long. Now, due to the high cost of its construction, this was the only all-concrete snowshed the Great Northern ever built. The entrance to the snowshed marks the approximate location of the eastern extent of the 1910 avalanche, and the exit of the snowshed marks the western end. When the lightning bolt struck the summit of Windy Mountain, a wall of ice and snow over 10 feet high half a mile long and a quarter mile wide began to careen down the mountain, unimpeded by brush and undergrowth thanks to logging and wildfires that had swept through the area the previous summer. A Great Northern employee named Charles Andrews heard the sound as he was walking toward one of the nearby bunkhouses. As he turned, he saw, in his words, quote, white death moving down the mountainside above the trains. Relentlessly, it advanced, exploding, roaring, rumbling, grinding, snapping, a crescendo of sound that might have been the crashing of 10,000 freight trains." Unquote. Andrews recalled witnessing the avalanche lift the two trains clean off the rails and throw them effortlessly into the air, where they disappeared into the spray of snow and debris. 
One survivor said it swallowed them like a white, broad monster. Five or six steam and electric engines hauling 15 boxcars, passenger cars, and sleeping cars. The trains plunged 150 feet down into the ravine, rolling and tossing, smashing through trees and boulders, some of which were big enough to split the cars in two before they disintegrated at the bottom. By the time the avalanche finally came to rest in Tai Creek, the remains of the Spokane local and fast mail trains were buried under 40 feet of snow. Wow, it's hard to believe this happened just over a hundred years ago, right here in Washington. If you've been paying attention, today's trivia questions shouldn't be too difficult for you. Keep track of your answers until the end of the episode to see how much you've learned. Question 1. The passenger train and the mail train caught in the Wellington Avalanche in 1910 had numerical identifiers I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. What were they? Your answers are A, 25 and 26, B, 26 and 27, C, 17 and 27, or D, 25 and 27. You don't have to tell me which number belonged to which train, just the two numbers involved in the disaster. Question two, along which highway in Washington can travelers find the turnoff to get to the Wellington Trailhead? Is it A, State Route 20, B, U.S. Highway 2, C, U.S. Highway 12, or D, Interstate 82? All good roads, only one leads to Wellington. Question three, what's the name of the trail that now follows the path of the old Great Northern Railroad tracks? Is it A, the Iron Horse Trail, B, the Iron Mule Trail, C, the Iron Goat Trail, or D, the Iron Ox Trail? Question four, from 1929 through 2008, explorers could plumb the depths of the old Cascade Tunnel on foot from east to west and back again. Then something happened that has prevented adventurers from that experience ever since. Was it A, a cave-in that blocked the passage and made the tunnel unsafe for travel? B, a series of ghostly apparitions mid-tunnel that became a frightening cascade legend keeping most people away? C, a family of bears that reside in the darkest portions of the tunnel and have been known to attack anyone trying to pass through? Or D, an authoritarian state government that just wants to keep the public from accessing its own history. Question five. How many people died when the avalanche from Windy Mountain smashed into the incognizant trains and drove them to the bottom of the Tai River ravine? Was it A, 56, B, 107, C, 89, or D, 96? While you think about the answers to those questions, I'll get back to the story. To get a sense of just how steep the hillside was, as you're hiking the Iron Goat Trail, you can step out onto an observation platform and take a look at the position of the trees compared to the slope of the land. 
It's a significant bank heading down into the ravine, easily greater than 45 degrees. There was no chance that those railroad cars were going to survive intact. When the avalanche slammed into the two trains, it only narrowly missed the town of Wellington itself. Remember, it was a little past one o'clock in the morning when the disaster struck. Awakened by the cacophony, patrons at the Hotel Bailets rushed out into the wind and sleet to see what had just happened, and were stunned to find both trains had vanished. Clamoring down the mountainside in their night clothes, they began frantically searching for survivors amidst the debris. However, the worsening weather forced them to suspend their rescue efforts until morning when conditions would improve. In the following days, word spread to nearby towns and more volunteers arrived to assist, including famed Northwest photographer Aishel Curtis. Newspapers began sensationally referring to the area as Death Hill. In all, 23 survivors were pulled alive from the mangled wreckage, describing scenes of horror as they were tossed around inside the tumbling train cars. Only one of the nine crewmen on the fast mail train survived. 19-year-old Alfred Hensel fell asleep on the opposite end of the car from his co-workers. When the avalanche hit, it split their car in half, and the other eight men were swept away in the fray. Those who did not survive were carefully wrapped and placed on toboggans, tied together with long ropes to be taken down the mountain for identification and burial. Curtis captured a number of images of volunteers tasked with this somber duty, many of which can be found in the University of Washington's special collection and the Library of Congress. Recovery crews dragged the bodies for miles until they could be hoisted down a steep slope to the nearby town of Scenic. The gruesome task included tying a rope to the victim's feet and then lowering the bodies head first before they reached the recovery train. In all, 96 people were killed, including 35 passengers, 58 Great Northern employees on the trains, and three railroad employees sleeping in cabins. Some were killed instantly from blunt force trauma, Others suffocated in the densely packed snow. It took the Great Northern three weeks to repair the tracks before trains could start running again over Stevens Pass. The snow was so dense, it took rescue crews 21 weeks before the last of the bodies was retrieved in late July. Great Northern soon invested millions to build a snowshed at the disaster site, hoping to spare lives in future avalanches. Wellington was soon renamed Ty by the Great Northern, after the creek that ran nearby, in the hopes of removing any negative associations with the area. But it wasn't enough to save the community. The new Cascade Tunnel opened in 1929, bypassing Wellington altogether. And the town soon ceased to exist. Time for answers to this episode's trivia questions. Question one was, what were the numerical identifiers assigned to the passenger train and the mail train? Your choices were A, 25 and 26, B, 26 and 27, C, 17 and 27, 
or D, 25 and 27. And the two trains obliterated by the 1910 Wellington Avalanche were Great Northern Passenger Train Number 25 and Fast Mail Train Number 27. D was the correct answer. Question two, name the highway in Washington where travelers can find the turnoff to get to the Wellington Trailhead. Possible answers were A, State Route 20, B, U.S. Highway 2, C, U.S. Highway 12, or D, Interstate 82. The correct answer is B, U.S. Highway 2, which runs unbroken from Everett, Washington to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Wellington, of course, can be found near the summit of Stevens Pass, named not for Washington's first territorial governor, Isaac Stevens, but for John Frank Stevens, an American civil engineer with the Great Northern Railway who charted the path through the Cascades. Interestingly, he was also the chief engineer on the Panama Canal from 1905 to 1907. All right, question three. What is the name of the trail that now follows the path of the old Great Northern Railroad tracks? Your answers all included the word iron, but which animal followed? Your choices were A, the Iron Horse Trail, B, the Iron Mule Trail, C, the Iron Goat Trail, or D, the Iron Ox Trail. While the Iron Horse Brewery in Ellensburg, Washington, makes one of my favorite frosty multi-adult beverages known as Quilter's Irish Death, it is not the name of this particular trail. No, the answer is C, the Iron Goat Trail, named after the solitary mountain goat in the Great Northern's logo. Question four, what happened in 2008 that has prevented explorers from walking through the abandoned 1929 Cascade Tunnel? It was not a family of bears or a series of spectral apparitions, nor was it a tyrannical state government addicted to power, although that could be debated. No, the correct answer is A. The public must avoid the old Cascade Tunnel by a half-mile radius because of a cave-in that created a debris dam and turned the passageway into a potentially deadly place for flash floods and falling chunks of concrete. Finally, question five. How many people died in the worst avalanche disaster in U.S. history? Your answers were A, 56, B, 107, C, 89, or D, 96. The answer, cited by most sources, is 96, D. But I did come across some websites reporting a death toll in the low 100s. Interestingly enough, around a dozen passengers and Great Northern employees decided to take their chances walking miles through the snow to the nearby town of Scenic on the day before the tragedy, rather than face yet another night on the mountainside. With them was the passenger train conductor, James Pettit. But he turned around mid-journey and backtracked to his train, where he perished that very evening. As you walk through the snowsheds on the Iron Goat Trail, you can imagine the Great Northern trains coming through, which they did until the new tunnel opened in 1929. Today, all that remains are rusted bits of metal scattered about the forest floor, crumbling concrete, rotting railroad ties, and the collapsed Cascade Tunnel at the site of America's deadliest avalanche. What will forever remain are the names and the stories of those who lost their lives here, a sorrowful list compiled 
quite reverently by Seattle's Queen Anne Historical Society that I'm going to share with you now. These are the passengers aboard Spokane Local No. 25. Richard Barnhart, a 40-year-old attorney from Spokane who left behind his wife and child. 40-year-old George Beck, his 30-year-old wife Ella, and their three children, Harriet, age 6, Irma, age 4, and Leonard, age 2, all from Marcus, Washington, just north of Kettle Falls. R.H. Bethel, a 44-year-old contractor and consulting engineer of the Seattle firm Bethel & Downey, who left behind his wife. 34-year-old Albert Bowles from Moberly in Ontario, Canada. John Brockman, a 45-year-old rancher from Waterville, Washington, northwest of Wenatchee. H.D. Chantrell, a 50-year-old customs officer at the Canadian border crossing in Blaine, Washington, who left behind a son. 60-year-old Alex Chisholm from Rossland, British Columbia, Canada. He left behind his wife. 50-year-old Solomon Cohen of Everett, Washington, who was survived by his wife and five children. 69-year-old Sarah Jane Covington, who left behind her husband and children. George Davis, a 35-year-old Seattle motorman on the Seattle, Renton, and Southern Line, and his three-year-old daughter, Thelma. Charles Eltinge, the 50-year-old treasurer of Seattle's Pacific Coast Pipe Company, who was survived by his wife and five children. 26-year-old George Heron and his companions, 24-year-old John Mackey and 26-year-old James Monroe, Irish immigrants who were all working at a sawmill in Moyi, British Columbia. Libby Latch, the 30-year-old head of Northwestern Sales Company in Seattle, who left behind her husband and small child. Sam Lee, a 25-year-old tattooed American man, about which we do not know any more. Edgar Lemon, a 47-year-old attorney from Hunters, Washington, on Lake Roosevelt, and his wife, 39-year-old Ada. They left behind their young daughter. Nellie Sharp McGurl, a 26-year-old writer, survived by her husband in California. 59-year-old James McNanny, a Seattle attorney and former judge, survived by his wife. 55-year-old Albert Mahler, a Seattle real estate dealer who left behind a wife and son. Bert Matthews, a 37-year-old traveling salesman from Cincinnati, Ohio. William May, a 54-year-old from Chemanus, British Columbia, Canada, who was traveling with his wife, adult daughter, and grandchildren who survived. His nine-year-old granddaughter, Lillian, and eight-month-old grandchild, Francis, perished with him. Catherine O'Reilly, the 26-year-old nurse from Sacred Heart Hospital in Spokane. Benjamin Thompson from Rossland, British Columbia, Canada, who left behind a wife. The Reverend James Thompson, a 57-year-old minister from Bellingham who left behind his wife and grown sons. Edward Topping, a 29-year-old traveling representative for Safety Door Hanger Company out of Ashland, Ohio, who left behind a small son. J.R. Vale, a 60-year-old sheep herder from Trinidad, Washington, on the Columbia River, south of Wenatchee. These are the railroad employees who died aboard both Spokane Local No. 25 and the Fast Mail Train No. 27. 
Lee Ahern, a 25-year-old mail weigher from Spokane on train number 25. Grover Beagle, a 24-year-old express messenger from Seattle on train number 25, who left behind a wife. Earl Bennington, a 29-year-old fireman from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. John Biart, a 40-something-year-old laborer. Arthur Blackburn, a 33-year-old train master survived by his wife and weak old baby in Everett, Washington. Richard Bogart, a 36-year-old mail clerk on train number 27. Fred Bone, a 20-year-old mail weigher from Palouse, Washington, just north of Pullman, on train number 27. William Bovey, a 26-year-old brakeman from Renton, Washington. Alex Campbell, who went by Ed, a 28-year-old rotary conductor who died in one of the cabins, leaving behind a wife in Bellingham, Washington. J.O. Carroll, an engineer survived by his wife in Everett, Washington. G. Christie, a laborer with no known kin. William Corcoran, a 45-year-old engine watchman. William Doherty, spelled D-O-R-E-T-Y, a brakeman of unknown age. Anthony Doherty, spelled D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y, a 27-year-old brakeman from Waverly, Minnesota. H.J. Drill, a 40-year-old express messenger from West Alexandria, Ohio. William Duncan, a 45-year-old porter from Seattle. Archie Dupey, a 23-year-old brakeman from Waynoka, Oklahoma. Earl Fisher, just 19, who was either a fireman or a laborer from Rossland, British Columbia in Canada. John Fox, the 42-year-old male clerk in charge of train number 27 who left behind his wife and three children in Seattle. Donald Gilman, a 33-year-old electrician who died in one of the Wellington cabins. M. Milton Hicks, a 25-year-old brakeman from Cedro Woolley, Washington, south of Bellingham. George Hofer, a 28-year-old mail clerk aboard train number 27 who left behind his wife in Spokane. Benjamin Jarnigan, a 31-year-old engineer from Seattle. G.R. Jenks, a fireman from Everett. Charles Jennison, a 28-year-old brakeman from Zimmerman, Minnesota. Sidney Jones, a 25-year-old fireman from Everett, left behind a wife. John Kelly, a 23-year-old brakeman from Everett. William Kenzel, the 38-year-old brakeman from Rochester, New York. Charles Ledoux, a 26-year-old mail clerk from Sydney, New York. 25-year-old laborer Gus Liebert and Jay Liberati, age unknown. Stephen Lindsay, who also went by Ed, a 33-year-old rotary conductor from Seattle. Earl Longcoy from Wisconsin the 19-year-old secretary to Great Northern's Cascade Division Superintendent J.H. O'Neill. Francis Martin, an engineer aboard train number 25 who was survived by his wife and children in Spokane. Archibald McDonald, a fireman whose body wasn't discovered until the snow thawed in the springtime. Peter Nino, a 37-year-old engine watcher, T.L. Osborne, an engineer from Leavenworth, Washington. Harry Partridge, a 35-year-old fireman from Biloxi, Mississippi. John Parzibach, 
a 24-year-old rotary conductor from Everett, survived by his bride of six months. Joseph Pettit, the conductor of train number 25, who was survived by his wife and children in Everett. 35-year-old laborer Antonio Porlolino. William Raycroft, a 31-year-old brakeman, survived by his wife in Everett. L. Ross, a 25-year-old fireman from Paintsville, Kentucky. 50-year-old laborer Carl Smith. Andrew Stomeyer, a 30-year-old brakeman killed in one of the cabins. Vasily Zuterin, a Russian laborer of about 35. Hiram Tosley, the 36-year-old mail clerk in charge of the mail car, survived by his wife at Fort Stillicum, Washington. John Tucker, 37-year-old mail clerk, survived by his wife in Spokane. Lewis Walker, a 53-year-old steward of Superintendent O'Neill's private train car, who left behind a wife in Everett. Julian Wells, a 19-year-old brakeman from Seattle. G.R. Yerkes, the 24-year-old fireman from Fielding, Michigan. Italian laborers Peter Bruno, age 40, Luigi Simarusti from Spokane, age 45, Mike Guglielmo from Spokane, age 23, and Giovanni Tosti, age 30, as well as six more unidentified laborers. The 23 survivors included John Gray and his wife Anna from Nooksack, Washington, near Bellingham. John suffered a broken leg and minor injuries. Anna's injuries were fairly severe. Their 18-month-old son, Varden, was also rescued with severe injuries. R.M. LaVille, an electrician from Missoula, Montana, was rescued with minor injuries. Mrs. William May, along with her daughter, Ida Starrett, who was trapped for 11 hours, and Ida's seven-year-old son, Raymond, who suffered severe injuries. Henry White, a salesman with the American Paper Company, survived. Porter Lucius Anderson was on the sleeping car and survived with minor injuries. Samuel Bates, a fireman, was rescued after being trapped for six hours beneath an engine. Ira Clary, a rotary conductor, was pulled from the snow with minor injuries. E.S. Duncan, a brakeman, had to be extricated from the wreckage, but he survived. Ray Forsyth, a section laborer, was sleeping in the passenger car, but he survived. Trainmaster William Harrington and rotary conductor Homer Purcell were actually thrown clear of the wreckage, but still suffered fairly severe injuries. J.L. Curley, a brakeman, had to be dug out from beneath a railroad engine. And fireman George Nelson, brakeman Ross Phillips, porter Adolf Smith, master mechanic Irving Tegtmeyer, and rotary conductor M.O. White were all rescued with minor to severe injuries. Alfred Hensel, the only surviving mail clerk from Fast Mail Train number 27, pulled himself free of the wreckage. In an interview afterward, he said, quote, When I came to, I found that I was pinned down with a timber or something over me in such shape that it was impossible for me to move any more than my head. After some difficulty, I worked myself out of there, and I did get out on top of the snow. And at that time, all I could see, or the first thing I saw, was the lights up at Wellington, which kind of puzzled me. As before, they were practically on level with us. 
where the trains were. And this time, they were up the mountain. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about haunted places here in Washington State, and the site of the Wellington disaster is usually one of the first and foremost mentioned. I've been to a lot of spooky, scary places, many of which have been purported to be haunted in Washington State, and I've got to say, not once has anything ever happened that's been cause for alarm. So I'm not sure if ghosts exist. After all, who am I to make that kind of determination? It hasn't happened to me. But maybe something like that has happened to you. If so, send me an email at eric at washingtonourhome.com. That's E-R-I-C-H at washingtonourhome.com. And let me know if you've experienced anything supernatural here in Washington State. I'd be happy to maybe follow up on that in a future podcast episode. I want to say thanks to Wikipedia, HistoryLink.org, and YesterdaysAmerica.com for some of the material I used to research this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast for new episodes featuring stories from Washington State's history, heritage, and culture. And follow Washington Our Home on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Until then, enjoy everything that our great state has to offer. I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Eagle, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.